Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. I'm Alicia Longwell. I'm the Lewis B. and Dorothy Coleman Chief Curator here at the museum. And it's been a great, great treat for me to give this series of talks about this wonderful show, Abstract Climates, Helen Frankenthaler in Provincetown. And I think one of the most interesting aspects for me and for this show is that it's about a very specific place and time, and also about the studios in which she painted, which in all cases influenced what she painted and how she looked at the world around her. In the brief recap department, Helen Frankenthaler, fabulous picture. This is her first photograph of her first summer in Provincetown when she studied with the great emigre German artist who'd come to New York in the 30s, Hans Hoffmann. Everybody but everybody who was anybody went and studied with Hoffmann either in New York, in the city, or in, that was founded in 33, or in Provincetown by 34. Now, Helen, born and raised on the Upper East Side, went to Dalton School, went to Bennington Women's College, at that time a very progressive school, and by this time she had met Clement Greenberg, whose name you may recognize, very prominent critic. She is in fact, what, in 1950, this is her first summer in Provincetown. She's about a year out of Bennington, actually. So she recently graduated from college, but already with uh, Greenberg in the milieu of the art world um, in New York, as it was. As I say, anyone who is anyone, Krasner, Lee Krasner, Nell Blaine, Robert De Niro Sr., they had all studied in Provincetown. We may vie with Provincetown as the oldest art colony here in Southampton. The first art colony there was founded by a Chase student, actually, Charles Webster Hawthorne in 1899. So there are a lot of similarities between the two uh, venues. A lot of the artists went back and forth between the two. At any rate, this was her first time in Provincetown. She loved it. She painted one of the paintings she did, and you'll see several in the first gallery on the right as you tour the exhibition. She did a few. She wasn't there very long, only three weeks. But later she said, I did more abstract things and larger things, and since I was still young and learning and energetic, some of them have a Hoffman feel. Uh, Hoffman was uh, certainly came out of cubism. His pedagogy was very much about color and the movement of color on the canvas, that color literally more than line could, could move a composition. So she learned a lot that first summer in three months. Then another great influence from Greenberg and the time when they were together, which was about five years. It was like graduate school, tutorial, PhD, all rolled into one as they saw every show in New York. The galleries, she called it a painting bath. They would collect the catalogs and rate them one, two, or three checks according to how she felt about the show, and she was introduced to many people, of course, that he knew, like Willem and Elaine de Kooning, Adolf Gottlieb, Franz Klein, Barnett Newman, the great sculptor David Smith, and many other members of the New York School. Um, most importantly, you would say, she met 
Pollock and Krasner, and in fact visited the Spring Studio in 1951 with Greenberg. So she was there at that moment when Pollock had unfurled canvas on the floor, uh, using really sort of large glass basting syringes to apply and drip the black enamel paint. And this was a revelation to her. And she, as it would be to any painter, especially any young painter, and she said what she took really from Pollock, and she freely admitted it, looking back, was the, the fact of working on the floor. That was revolutionary in many ways. And also the the whole idea of all sides of a canvas being activated, that all sides of the picture being possible, whether the bottom or top or the sides, she said that idea came from him in the sense that the canvas was sort of unfurled in one long roll and he would, as we've sort of seen images in photographs and in film of his choreography sort of dancing down the canvas, but that ultimately it would be cut into one canvas size, and then the orientation of that decided much later, not while he was actually in the middle of painting. And there they are at the beach. So they did, uh, that's of course, um, Pollock and Greenberg, Frankenthaler and Krasner, and forever identified as unidentified child. No one seems to know who it, it could well have been one of Pollock's uh, nephews. From, of one of his brothers, but it's never been shown. A mere year later, 1952, again, I won't sound like a broken record, but do remember just how young she is still. She was actually 23. She didn't turn 24 in 1952 until December of that year. She and Greenberg went on a sketching trip around the Cape Breton and the maritime provinces in Canada. She brought back the sketches. She went into her studio in New York one day in October and sort of, you know, rather like Athena from the head of Zeus or something, this, this painting just came. In other words, it was not overly thought. The canvas was unfurled on the floor. She used any manner of applying the paints and really began what she called drawing with color. So it's not so much line, but color. This is a large-scale painting as large as several of them in our final gallery, but she really didn't know what to make of it in a way. Greenberg saw it. He was absolutely uh, ecstatic about it. He was sort of the apostle of the flatness of paint, that paint should really not be, should be into the surface of a painting. And of course, she had used unprimed canvas, which means there's no barrier between the paint and that fabric of canvas itself, cotton, so that it seeps in in some ways, this being oil paint. It means some of the emulsions, some of that will seep in uh, to the canvas more than the color or the paint itself. So all these things are going on with this enormous and quite um, groundbreaking canvas. Greenberg then sort of apparently had a key to the studio, later brought two younger painters, one Kenneth Nolan and one Morris Lewis to see that. And Kenneth Nolan said, right from the very beginning was, Helen pointed the way that uh, young, as young painters, all of them were searching for a bridge between Pollock and what was possible. I mean, imagine trying to make a painting after, you know, Jackson Pollock has made all the headlines, sort of sucked all the air out of the uh, room. And this is what led 
that younger generation, they would be called the color field painters. So you'll sometimes hear Frankenthaler, this is a bit of housekeeping, referred to as an abstract expressionist, which she was in many ways, but also as a color field painter. And she's sort of credited with that movement, although she does not always think of herself in those terms, because as I'll show you a bit later, Morris Lewis, Kenneth Nolan, Frank Stella, they all went in different directions, certainly, from what she had. So this is, again, not a part of the show. Obviously, Mountains and Sea, interestingly enough, she showed it immediately at the Tibor Dinage Gallery. The price tag was $100. It didn't sell. She took it home, took it off the stretcher, and rolled it up and put it away. It's now on long-term loan to the National Gallery. It was never given to them. I think that's sort of her way of saying, okay, you know, you, you'll come to know what this painting is in time, but she did keep it for herself. She actually kept a good deal of paintings, and she, the foundation, which of course organized this show uh, with the Provincetown Art Association and Museum, was founded, she found it in her lifetime. She wanted to preserve this legacy. It's in, uh, has offices in New York, uh, vast archives of all her material and letters and, and uh, everything, and it's a real resource. They do a lot of programming as well, which is open to the public, which you might want to go to the website. So this is 1952, a little detour from Provincetown, but by 1957, the relationship actually with Greenberg ended in the 1950s. She spent a summer here in East Hampton, which I've mentioned, in 55, when she saw all the local uh, people, and she sort of wondered how anyone got any work done, because there was a lot of partying going on. At the end of 1957, she met Robert Motherwell. Uh, for the, not for the first time, she of course knew of him, she knew of him, his position in the New York school and the New York art world, but they met at a New Year's Eve party for Bob and Abby Friedman, who were a couple who was well known here on the East End as well, the party was in New York, and fell quickly in love, and they were married by 19, um, 1958. And the interesting thing about, someone asked me last week, I spoke a bit more about Motherwell because then last week's, uh, the proximity of their studios in the Sea Barn was there. And so I talked a bit more about Bob Motherwell himself. It's interesting that someone, I mentioned that he spoke French and tended to be the liaison with the French surrealist artists, the emigres who, who left, uh, got out of France during the war. And someone asked me, well, why did he speak French? And I, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, obviously because he studied it, but you know, there might be a greater tale to that. He was, and I'll digress a moment because I think it's interesting and as to why did he speak French? I, you know, Pollock never left the US. Not all the New York painters were terribly versed in European manners and culture. But I would say that Motherwell was born in Aberdeen, Washington, state of Washington. His father was the president of a Wells Fargo bank. It went back that far. It went back even farther than that, Wells Fargo. And his father was apparently horrified by the notion when Motherwell said he wanted to be a painter. That's right. Uh, people are still horrified. No, no, no. Um, I don't, it's a tough life. Any, any child going into the arts, you have to be prepared for 
ups and downs, I suppose, the uh, vagaries of taste. But Motherwell's father thought, aha, uh -huh. he, he said, I'll, I'll get that out of his system. So he said, if you will, in fact, go to college, I will see that you have a $50 a month stipend, stipend, which was a good deal of money in those days, for the rest of my life, and that it will also be in a bequest. So for the rest of your life, you'll have this stipend. I don't think it was tagged to inflation, but anyway. <laughs> should been too bad. But so he said, all right, I can do that. And he went to Stanford. And he loved the philosophy department. He studied philosophy, which is why he got into... French and learning French and speaking French. And he came to, he f had further studies at Harvard. Well, he didn't get being a painter out of his system by any means. So he went on. Many of you may know that he had a beautiful house here in uh, East Hampton in the 40s that he had hired the uh, emigre French architect Pierre Charot to uh, take a converted Quonset hut, which was the sort of prefab building used by the army, certainly during the war, to get buildings up quickly or fabricate them. And beautiful house by that, which is now, unfortunately, has been torn down, a real icon of modernist uh, architecture. And really the only work that Cherot ever had in this country was what Motherwell saw to it. So back in New York, and a painter, he became the conduit with the, or the liaison, so to speak, with the other New York painters who took a bit of a dim view of the French. Certainly their wives did. Lee Krasner said <laughs> that the wives, the, that the surrealists and the French surrealists here treated their wives like French poodles. And she thought that was very tasteless because not, the women were excluded from everything. And, but at any rate, Motherwell had discovered uh, Provincetown uh, by the 50s. And the first uh, summer they spent in Provincetown, and that's the little Fiat Jolly there that he bought, this wonderful little beach roustabout, which is actually still in production, I learned. It's amazing what you learn on the internet. <laughs> the Fiat Jolly is still in production. It's about 60 years old, so this would have been one of the first. He had this little roustabout car. And that's the first home they lived in, and the, they had studios there, in fact, for the first year. It was a bit crowded, this beautiful Cape at 622 Commercial Street. If you know Provincetown, how many of you know Provincetown? Yeah. It's wonderful, and Commercial Street is tiny. The whole sort of down area there is tiny, and they actually, you know, the buildings they were in were right in the heart uh, of the city. So that was sort of the, the first of the, uh, the first gallery is about that space and place in 622 Commercial Street. Well, also, uh, uh, Motherwell had two young daughters from his first marriage who actually spent all the summers that always with them in Provincetown and also lived year-round with, they had full custody for a period of about two years. And I will say that Lee's Motherwell, who was the younger daughter, is also was the co-curator of the exhibition with Elizabeth Smith, who's the head of the Frankenthaler Foundation. So you have this wonderful, intimate view of the whole period. Certainly gives us license to talk rather intimately about what went on with you know Frankenthaler as a uh, painter, moreover as an instant stepmother and sort of this intimate view of those years in Provincetown, which is, I think, one of, the, one of the many things that makes it so special. Well, the house got a little crowded with the girls and 
having studios there. So actually Hans Hoffman said, and this is the sort of second nexus, this is the second gallery of a really breakthrough uh, summer of 61, when uh, Hans Hoffman, always sort of an avuncular type, who, who kept up with both a great friend of Motherwell's and of course had become endeared to Helen by that first summer in Provincetown. So he said, there's a space at uh, something called Day's Lumberyard. It was an old 19th century. It's a brick storage and facility there. That's all, you know, obviously a loft, hayloft on the top. But anyway, he said, you could renovate spaces there. They'll be great. He said, you can put in a toilet. You can put in heat. It'll be perfect for you. <laughs> so they took his advice, and they did have their studios there for quite a while. That's Motherwell, of course, on the top, and Frankenthaler on the bottom. Now, you might wonder what sort of views they had from there. Well, they didn't really. And Frankenthaler was really not one to look at the landscape despite what we all probably think from seeing the exhibition. She was not, I mean, she loved the well landscape, she loved the water, but she was not depicting any specific scene, although you will say to me the titles get quite specific, and, and indeed they do. But she was really talking more uh, and wanting to convey more of a feeling. This is the wonderful, in the second gallery, Orange Breaking Through. Again, she's working on this unprimed canvas and really uh, staining with the paint and all manner of things. Um, Lee's mother, well, the stepdaughter, said she never threw away a can of Martin. She said Martinson's coffee, right? <laughs> and she never threw away a can because she would use it to, you know, apply the paint. And moreover, she never threw out the coffee grounds either because she might just put those in a painting as well. She was, you might say, a risk taker. Uh, you might say someone who did not calculate the very end uh, of a painting. She said something interesting once about accidents. There are many accidents that are nothing but accidents, and forget it. But there are some that were brought about only because you are the person you are. You have the wherewithal, intelligence, and energy to recognize it and do something with it. So she would take those risks maybe on the outside chance, or maybe on the more calculated um, chance, that that would work. She was an extraordinarily intuitive painter, and uh, I think you see that in the work. So they rented the Day's Lumberyard there in 61, and this, as you'll see in the paintings in that second gallery, certainly enabled her to work at a larger scale. Paintings got much, much bigger. This is a photograph of what Motherwell had named the sea barn, this sort of ramshackledy thing in the middle. <laughs> he had admired, that's right on the breakwater, that's right on the bay, and he had admired that for a long time. He would often say that after he finished painting at the day's, at day's lumber yard, at the end of the day, he would retreat to this house by the sea. He'd sit on the steps there that go right down in the water, and he would look at the water, it was long tied up in an estate, very hard to find out who owned it, but he was persistent with his attorney. And he purchased it in 1963. Over the years, they renovated it together to eventually have more space, studios for both. And what's interesting, uh, upper right, you see the view 
sitting on that patio. I mean, like Sag Harbor, everything in Providence down there is kind of chock-a-block, so their houses are very close. But sitting on the patio, you looked right out of the water, and moreover, you could go leap right into it. And that's Frankenthaler's head bobbing up and down there. She, according to Lise, her stepdaughter was a fantastic swimmer, also taught Lise um, how to swim. And just that proximity to the water obviously had a, had a great effect on her. But her own sort of physical attachment to that daily ritual was very important. She, over the years, as I said, they renovated. She wrote to a friend and she said, everyone's talking about the white skyscraper going up on the breakwater. So the neighbors obviously couldn't do much about it, but uh, it kept getting taller and taller. This brings us up to today and looking really at the last studio space that she had in Provincetown, how that really influenced the paintings. So as you see, they're kind of secured now at Sea Barn. Lee's Motherwell conjectured that maybe the girls were older now, they had friends over, there was quite a bit of commotion there in at Sea Barn. Uh, apparently, Frankenthaler decided she needed a studio at sort of a remove from the house somewhere. It was a little bit maybe quieter. She could um, work more easily. So she found a space at a, uh, something called Nelson's Riding Stable, which is not far out of town, as far as I can ascertain by the map. But she would go there and had a beautiful studio converted. It wasn't a view so much as it was sort of surrounded it by the woods. She called it her studio in the woods. And you see her there although there's, you know, not a lot of excess room. She's just sort of fitting. She would roll out the canvas. This, again, is working with a roll of canvas. She would roll it out so that she still had room to walk around the edge, but not much more. So it was an enormously productive summer, and this two, two of the paintings from the summer of 67 are here in the uh, large gallery on the left, Indian Summer, and also the largest, certainly, painting here, the astonishing painting, Flood. Now, she wrote to her friend, uh, Sonia Rudikoff, which is another, if you have time to sort of look at the archival material in the cases, she was a great correspondent and writer. I mean, maybe everyone was in those days. I feel like we don't really write letters so much anymore. We just get on FaceTime or something. But she had this extraordinary correspondence with her friend Sonia Rudikoff, whom she had met just after college, and she would write volumes, really, to her. Sonia gave 500 letters that she'd had over the course of Frankenthaler's lifetime. Uh, Rudikoff gave it to the library at Princeton, so it's an extraordinary resource to be there. She wrote that summer to her friend Sonia, painting every morning in my studio from nine and return by one. Now, I will parenthetically say that, according to Lise, they always gathered for lunch. Motherwell was more likely really to paint later in the day, even after dinner, but they all gathered with the girls at, at one to have sort of a sit-down lunch. Uh, otherwise, they would be probably entertaining or going out in the evening, the parents. So she says, and I return by one. I've done more than in these three months that I have in well over a year. The studio is perfect for me. Not too large, but big enough to roll out one large canvas. I think the past two weeks, I might have made some of the best 
of my, many of the others, some of the best, as if many of the others were warm-ups to get free and onto and on top of the recent work. So you can see what an extraordinary effect this has on or just sort of the a physical space. In talking about flood, many, many things have been used to talking about, and she herself has written quite a bit about it. She uh, later said, it's a strange picture in that regard. It was the last painting of that summer. I started at the top. Hello, sorry. This is, in fact, Indian summer, a gorgeous painting. Uh, again, in the big gallery on the left. And this is Flood. It was the last painting of that summer. I started at the top with the pink and then added the layers and filled in the green. It was still wet, and I was dissatisfied with it, so I went to a kind of brushiness. The whole painting, for me, was constructed in an unusual way. And then the last area painted was the blue horizontal against the bottom. When I got to the bottom left, she later wrote, I left that gap of white as a space. You see that in the painting. As I left the air spaces in another painting she refers to. She says, of course, people commented that it was aptly named in Flood. And that she, then she said, I did it in my treehouse studio, which is what she also called the studio, on the second floor in Stands of Pine. It was not painted by the bay. The studio floor was a, had a lot of liquid sea on, a, a lot of liquid paint on the floor. The studio was flooded with color. So it's kind of wonderful. This indeed must have taken up that whole floor in the studio. So as she said, this was an extraordinarily productive summer, led into another summer in the same studio, in the woods, um, in the treehouse, so to speak. And this was summer banner. There, the next summer was 68. She, she um, sort of looked at the festive banners at the blessing of the fleet and other occasions. And they certainly took part in all the wonderful 4th of July, all the parades, everything in Provincetown. And this is some from the Banner series. Uh, the next summer, um, 69, well, I'll just go back to 68, um, the Banner paintings. But that summer, the next summer, 69, she actually, Motherwell bought a boat. You can see the little speed boat there, docked right in front. He called it La Belle, La Belle Hélène, <laughs> named after her. And there she is on the little brick patio there at the sea barn, uh, which of course they used for, that's where they lived actually, even of course when she had her studio in the woods. That's Barbara Rose, the eminent historian and art critic, who was at that point working on a monograph for Abrams, which would be uh, published in, in 72. They worked on it a long time together. They were great friends. Barbara Rose is one of the most astute critics then and, and now, really. She also did an interview with Frankenthaler for the Archives of American Art. Now, if any of you don't know about this resource, it's one of the better things the federal government does these days, <laughs> although it's always beleaguered and looking for donations. But um, over the years, it has, they have commissioned uh, interviews with prominent artists. Uh, they're a resource for gifts, um, donations, uh, bequests of artist papers. You will find 
anyone doing research in, in American art, really, that's, that's the first stop. It's there went early on into digitizing work, and there's a good deal um, on the web. It's worth perusing at some point, wonderful troves of photographs and very interesting. So let's hear it from the Archives of American Art. So uh, wonderful. As you can imagine, to have these by an interviewer as skilled as, as Barbara Rose, someone who knows the work that well, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, resource to have to hear Frankenthaler's uh, voice. Also that summer, this idea of the banner paintings, this is one which she called the human edge, which I think had a lot of people head scratching. I think it was sort of a, and it has been called sort of a repose to the, as you'll recall in 52 when she did the momentous painting, Mountains and Sea, sort of the first stain painting there on the floor in her studio and the, her contemporary, they were young painters, they were certainly a bit older than her, but Kenneth Noland and Morris Lewis came in and were so excited and went on to do their own thing with color field painting. She was sort of left in the dust with color field painting. I mean, they really sort of took it on, took it on and paint, and or, were early and often uh, championed by Motherwell, uh, championed by Greenberg as well, which must have been something of a a shock. I mean, she sort of rarely gets mentioned except in the context of mountains and sea as being a color field painter. So um, those artists were, of course, Kenneth Nolan, upper left, Morris Lewis in the center, and that's one of Frank's great, Frank Stella's great protractor series. This came to be known as this color field or hard edge painting. That was another term that cropped up. So she felt that she'd done a pretty hard-edged painting, but she didn't want to call it that. So she called it the human edge, which has sort of a, I think that's a bit of a dig there at what uh, is happening. I mean, this is the art world, fickle beyond belief. Frankenthaler had certainly had accolades heaped on her, there's, there's no question, but it was a very, it was a very small club there to tell you the truth. This is a wonderful picture. You, you would know this of the blessing of the fleet of the harbor. We have them in Montauk, but it's this uh, festooning of the banners that so appealed to her and really uh, suggested that formal, formal idea of the banner paintings. And of course, from the next summer, 69, now, not to be too sad, we do have to point out this was the last summer we know Maybe she didn't know it then, but I think she knew it by the end of the summer. This would be her last summer in Provincetown, her last summer uh, with Motherwell, certainly. And this is one called Blessing of the Fleet, because it is, in fact, the Portuguese, great numbers of the fishermen, of course, in, in Provincetown are of, of Portuguese uh, descent. And these are the colors, in fact, of the Portuguese flag that she would have seen flying. This is another of the great big, wonderful paintings in, in the first room. I mean, the first room on the left, which you'll see. This is a painting called uh, Cloister. We'll talk in a minute about names because Shakespeare said, what's in a name? Well, you tend to think of, it means a lot if a painter gives a painting a name. And not always in Frankenthaler's case, as we shall see, but uh, this is Cloister also from 69 might not have been the final painting of that summer, but it certainly has an elegiac tone uh, with the darker palette there, certainly in the large form. 
It's called Chatham Light, which would of course refer to the beautiful old lighthouse at Chatham down a little bit south uh, on the Cape. Provincetown is up at the very tip of the Cape. And as I soon found out, Provincetown is called the East End too. So I had to, <laughs> couldn't call it, couldn't call the Hamptons the East End in Provincetown because no one would get that, but it is the top and the easternmost point there. Now, this is the Chatham Lighthouse. So obviously she's not really depicting the Chatham Lighthouse, but you can certainly see by the formal composition here, she was after uh, obviously having a more uh, emphatic statement of, uh, about the landscape and the light. I wanted to talk a few minutes about so just to end there, by the next year, she and Motherwell had in fact closed on a house in Greenwich early in the year. She did not ultimately li live there. The next year, Motherwell summer, that would be uh, 70, 70. Motherwell was back in Provincetown with the girls. Frankenthaler was not there. She did not return. And by, by the end of 70, 70, Apparently, Motherwell noted in a diary, marriage dissolves, which is pretty succinct, <laughs> but annotated in December. And the divorce was finalized by the next year. In subsequent interviews, you know, Frankenthaler said there were things she wouldn't talk about. One of them was her, her marriage to Motherwell, you know, and then that whole relationship, or, or Greenberg. So historians have kind of put the pieces together, but nothing seems she didn't remarry for quite a while. Motherwell did, but uh, she didn't. I wanted to, um, that's, of course, Clement Greenberg at the top. About the time that Frankenthaler first met him, he was, uh, again, 12 years older, I think, than she they remain very good friends. It would be good not to make an em enemy of Clement Greenberg, I think, whether she took that into consideration or not. I think she was, I believe, very, I, I mean, it was an incredible influence on her, and she, and she knew that, and I think, and was grateful for it. In some ways, they remained friends. This is a show at Emmerich Gallery. She left T. Bordenage and went to Emmerich in the 70s, and he's there sort of I don't know, making suggestions. He looks like he's peering there. He remained a, a friend and a confidant, really. And then on the right, I just wanted to sort of diametrically juxtapose Frank O'Hara. <laughs> Couldn't be more different in temperament from Greenberg. O'Hara, of course, the wonderful poet, critic. Also, he worked at the Museum of Modern Art as a curator. He was a playwright, really very much about that sort of downtown, more associated, you would say, with uh, not Emmerich Gallery, but Tibor Denage Gallery, where he was certainly an influence with painters such as Jane Freilicher, Jane Wilson, Fairfield Porter, Grace Hardigan, and Joan Mitchell, an extraordinary array of, of women painters in that period that were shown uh, by Bernard Myers, the curator at Tibor Denage. And Frank was a great, great champion of uh, those painters, and very much especially so Helen. He, in fact, organized a retrospective of her work in 1960, and we'll do a little mathematical check there. She's, what, 32, so it's a little, it's, it's soon for a retrospective, but she had an enormous body of work. And he wrote about, it was at the Jewish Museum in New York, although he was affiliated with the 
uh, MoMA, he wrote, this is in 1960, one of, the strength, one of the strengths is her ability to risk everything on inspiration, but one feels that the work is judged afterward by a very keen and erudite intelligence. She is a daring painter willing to risk the big gesture to employ huge formats so that essentially intimate revelations may be more fully explored. He was a wonderful writer, and he certainly you know, captured that uh, aspect of Frankenthaler's work. He was, of course, died in an accident in 66. I, the, um, as a very, very young man, interesting, I ran across this um, from an obituary that Peter Sheldahl wrote for the Village Voice. This is about uh, O'Hara. The New York art world is collectively thunderstruck. In 15 years as a poet, playwright, critic, curator, and universal energy source in the lives of a few hundred most of the most creative people in America, Frank O'Hara has rendered that whole world unprepared to tolerate his passing, which is quite wonderful. That's Sheldahl, I mean. <laughs> Does everybody read The New Yorker? He's an incredible writer. He's such a wordsmith. Do you always look up a word? that you never saw before. I don't know how the guy does it, right? Now he's a fabulous writer, and that's, uh, you know, just sort of a, an example, but certainly good to have that sort of tribute as a record to Frank O'Hara. At any rate, I think almost with Greenberg and O'Hara, you see that two sort of ends of the fulcrum in, in uh, the New York art world, and you know what, Frankenthaler, I think it goes without saying that she is someone who could negotiate and, and navigate many worlds couldn't resist this picture from the five spot. Frankenthaler's not in it, but uh, upper left is David Smith, the great American sculptor. She was also uh, very, very close to him. But then you see O'Hara, and that's Larry coming around at the top, and then Larry Rivers, and then the great Grace Hardigan. Grace and uh, Frank were probably uh, the closest of the, of the two at the table. And then on the right is... Helen Frankenthaler with David Smith in this wonderful picture. And there's just, there's mountains and sea. I don't know, maybe she unrolled it again, but <laughs> just sort of the backdrop, maybe it's pretty big to have in your apartment, but there she is with mountains and sea. So one other critic, art world denizen, I'd like to mention here, there's a photograph from, I don't know, I think it's probably at uh, 622, Commercial Street as well, but a gathering there with Hans Hoffman, upper left, and uh, Bill Seitz, William Seitz, who was a great curator at MoMA then. That's little Lee's Motherwell, and that's Bob Motherwell, the Robert Motherwell. Seitz's wife, that's Jeannie Motherwell, um, who actually is a painter. Interestingly, Jeannie Motherwell is the older girl, daughter. Uh, she, she's an artist. She still works in Day's Lumberyard, I think, with her, where her father used to be. She became an artist, and Lee's Motherwell became a psychoanalyst, which I think is interesting. Those are two. And then lower right, who's that? Anyone know? What? Geltzahler, you're right. Did you know? <laughs> Dino must know him. There he is. Talk about uh, a bon vivant in the art world. That is uh, just a wonderful little page from the diary that I loved. 
and, you know, entertaining and, well, by all accounts, was a little reserved, a little taciturn, and it really sort of fell to Frankenthaler to orchestrate these gatherings, which wasn't hard in Provincetown because people came through. But like O'Hara in the picture and then Barbara Rose, certainly um, she invited friends. So just to talk about Henry Geltzaler for a moment, there he is, always had a cigar. Some of you and Dinah, you know, of course, he sort of ended his days in Southampton, New York, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, he was a, a great boulevardier. He was always on the street doing something in front of the old parish. You'd run into him any time. Henry, I have to say, could excite you about something just beyond belief, the way he talked about things. I remember once he just heard the new Paul Simon album, the Graceland, and he talked about it like it was the second coming. <laughs> so I ran right out and bought the album. But he was like that. This person could generate enormous enthusiasm and interest. And he was, in fact, at 34, the first sort of curator of modern painting at the Met. There he is with that. It's always the cigar. It was on the cusp of the centennial of the Met, in 1969, the centennial was, I think, 1970, but he, in 69, so going back, this is the year, that last year in Provincetown, this uh, took place, this show opened in November of that year, he somehow persuaded the, <laughs> shall we call them the suits at the Met, there's a gathering of some of the board and the director. He convinced them to have this huge show of, he called it New York Painting and Sculpture. 43 artists, like something like 35 galleries, and how many women do you think were included? And uh, oddly enough, uh, the only record of the one that was shown is this wonderful painting uh, that you'll see in Gallery One, but it's called Abstract Landscape. And it's sort of an anomaly. I mean, it really doesn't look like many of the other paintings that you'll see throughout the show. And it, you know, she's looking at Matisse, shall we say. It's cubist. It's not typical. Of course, the painting is from 1959 or 60 or something. So this painting is already, you know, very old. I don't know if Galtzoller just didn't have the nerve to show a bigger painting. But the list of artists goes from Joseph Albers to Edward Hopper to Jackson Pollock to Andy Warhol. I mean, it was ever, uh, 43 is a big head count. And Geltzoller was happy that sort of downtown artists, George Siegel with the, you know, pla Plaster of Paris cast, uh, a lot of sort of downtown artists, but only one woman. Interesting. So, just a little digression here, or just a little sort of I don't, epilogue. There, there's a word, epilogue, uh, to the talks, which I've enjoyed immensely, uh, having the opportunity to talk about a wonderful show like this. On the left is a list of paintings that she wrote out in 1969. You can see the dimensions. Yes, they're big. Now, in fact, both she and Motherwell would roll up the paintings, or. The wonderful, uh, along about 62, they both started using acrylic paint or a combination, but usually the acrylic, which would have the great benefit of drying faster. So if you were on the floor and taking up all the space, 
you wanted to get that painting, get it dry. Well, you could tack it up, but before you could roll it, it really needed to be dry. So she would just make lists of these rolls, like hoping that when it went on the truck, the same number uh, would get off when it got to New York. Right. Well, on the right is Cezanne apple painting. It's one in the Met, I believe, certainly one she would have seen. What she, she sort of resisted the idea of, she never wanted to be called a landscape painter. I mean, of course you're gonna say, why did she title things Provincetown Bay or Cool Summer or Flood, which is a valid reason, but apparently she would often make up lists of titles long before she put them on works. She would leave works untitled until she decided what to do. But she always said, you know, why should I title things? It's obvious that it's not really a landscape. It's obvious that that's not the subject of any painting that she might say, Provincetown Bay or view from the window. But she said, no more than apples are the subject of a Cezanne painting, <laughs> which is a true, if you think about it. Why would one of the greatest painters of all time choose the most banal of all things to sort of paint, which would be a table full of apples, right? That's not his point. That's not really his subject. His subject is paint and what you can do with it. And uh, so that's sort of, she would um, invoke Cezanne, always a good person to a painter, a good forebear to invoke when you think about it. She also looked at old master paintings, which is something we don't really see in this show. This is a Mahas on a Balcony, of course, by the great Francisco Goya in the Met, painting she would have known from childhood when she was taken quite frequently with her uh, nursemaid to the Metropolitan Museum. And apparently the um, painting on the right, which obviously you're going to say differs in many, many ways from the one on the left, and this is absolutely true. And in fact, the painting on the right, she once had the other end up. So uh, in many ways, it's like exponentially different from Goya. But she said she painted it not as a copy, not as a parody, but as an homage, really, to Goya and her admiration for him. And this sort of crops up throughout her career. I just wanted you to sort of see some uh, uh, kind of another tack that she took in finding subject matter. This is a great one of the painting on the left is painting, Gorgeous Still Life by Edouard Manet. And she titled her painting 4EM. I think you can see that correlation maybe a lot better with this, although it's not, you know, shape for shape, color for color, word for word. But what she was trying to get was the feeling of this painting, the paint, the sheen on the fish, the light on the shellfish, and of course the way the whole painting is lit and that beautiful white tablecloth and the sort of copper bin behind it. Well, these are shapes that you vaguely see in her work as well with the, the, uh, kind of the, the darker vessel up, upper right in her piece, that sort of central white sheen, that beautiful pearly paint of the fish. But I think it's interesting to see how she also looked at more historical art now this is a beautiful painting in the show. It's called Cool Summer. It's uh, from 62, one of the paintings she did 
in the new Sea Barn studio when she was close to the water. The thing about looking out also from Sea Barn, the one right on the uh, breakwater, is that the tidal flats, as I understand it, the tide goes out very, very far so that you will see exposed seaweed or sandbars. or So it's, it's not just water when the tide is so extreme or whatever, you, you, will, you will see a large portion of the tidal flats exposed. So she did, she certainly saw that view. That was the view from their bedroom when that was up on the second floor. But what she always resisted was this idea, although, you know, in a formal analysis, you can say, well, that green is the a wave. You can say the blue is the sky coming through. You, you could, that, you know, sort of golden orb upper left is the sun. You could deconstruct this, you know, just about any way you, you please. But in, in essence for her, and remember, this is on the floor, and she's, you know, sometimes right in the middle of it. If you, if you see, if you please, if you haven't had have a chance to watch the video, she may be right on top, literally in a painting. So it's not like she gets a great broad vista in that sense. But I, uh, just to close on a, a happy note, <laughs> I mean, there she is. There is no question that these summers meant a great deal to her. She certainly relished in many in many ways as motherhood. Anyone's mother, anyone's motherhood role is not always a walk in the park, but she relished being with these girls and watching them grow. And and she and Lee's, in fact, kept up a friendship, you know, throughout Helen's life. And these were, especially even the last summer was. It's as though she was sort of maybe a bit of a frenzied moment, maybe having a premonition of or having more than a premonition of where everything was going at that time, but just an enormous outpouring of paintings. Well, she wanted to sort of get Provincetown down on canvas. So I'm thrilled that you could be here, and I've certainly enjoyed this. So thank you all. You're a great audience. Thank you.